Good evening and greetings in the worthy name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for those songs, brother, especially the second one. Take the world, but give me Jesus. It's easy to sing. Maybe not so easy to remember at all times. But I hope that is your prayer for this week especially and for all time. And I certainly want it to be my prayer. Take the world, but give me Jesus. The world will pass away, but Jesus abides forever. And this week has much to do with eternity. Are we ready for eternity? What happens when we stand at the threshold of eternity? Critical, critical questions. Well, I look out and I'm not sure. There may be a couple familiar faces, but there's probably about 50 people in between each of the familiar faces. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, I wonder what this guy looks like, and you're probably disappointed now. That's okay. But friends, I, I want to assure you of something, that this week has much, much, much more to do, I don't know how many muches I should, I should put in there, with God than it does with me. And it has to do with all of us being faithful. So pray that this week we could be faithful to God. I'll just give a brief introduction at supper tonight at, at Brother Terrell's, and of course, you know Mennonites, there's connections that come up almost immediately, and, and tonight was no exception, so we had, had a lot of fun around the table uh, talking about people we knew, and, but I have a wife back home and seven children. Um, up until last, late last year, we only had six. We had a, an addition to our family in December of last year. So we have four daughters and three sons, and I would uh, appreciate your prayers for them. We've had a little bit of an interesting twist here in the last days. I'm not going to go into details, but we do have a daughter that is, that is sick at home, and we would appreciate your prayers for them. I'd like to uh, think this week, uh, it's, it's uh, something that's been impressed on my mind and heart, it's from Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, just the beginning part of the verse there. Some of you will recognize the verse as you're turning to it. And I know it's a verse that at times has been, been debated. What exactly is Jesus saying here as he's talking to Peter? Of course, he had just told Peter something in verse 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We talked a little bit earlier about how eternal, how, how we need to focus on eternal things. And Jesus Christ said he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he goes on and he tells Peter, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And I'd like to think this week, and I don't know if every evening we're going to talk about keys or talk about different aspects of keys, but I am fascinated tonight that Jesus told Peter that he's going to give him the keys of the kingdom. 
The dictionary gives this definition for the word key. It says a small piece of shaped metal with incisions cut to fit the wards of a particular lock, which is inserted into a lock and turned to open or close it. We probably all know the frustration of, of thinking we had the right key and we stuck it in and we try to turn and it won't turn because things don't line up. And friends, tonight I wonder what kind of victory, what kind of power, what kind of joy, what kind of satisfaction are we getting as people from the kingdom of God? Because friends, tonight there are keys, and I'm convinced of it with all my heart. There are keys that God gives us. They're, they're laid out in his word. And you know, as we study his word and as we look at his word, we find some of those keys and we just want to consider some of those tonight. But there are today, there's many different ways to accomplish the same thing. That definition that I mentioned there, there's many different ways to accomplish the same thing. Brother Terrell texted me a code today. He said the code to get into the house is this, 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 and this. And I didn't have a key at all, and I just walked up to the front door. I punched a couple buttons, and it let me into the house. But the fact is that there was somebody with authority that was giving me the, the instructions or, or the recipe, so to speak, of how to get into the house. And if you and I are students of this word and we're willing to dedicate ourselves to living by its precepts, then we get in. Keys of the kingdom of heaven, and no matter how, society, how much society promotes it or how many articles are printed stating that so-and-so went to heaven, you've probably read the articles that these people had no regard for God, they had no regard for his word, they probably barely knew they existed, and yet when they died, they went straight to heaven. And I don't care how many of those articles are printed, it, the Bible is still true when it says there are ways into the kingdom of heaven. This is not an automatic, this is not something that because we're a Martin or because we're a hostile or a Yoder or whatever, whatever name you want to put in there or anything of that sort. It has to do with making decisions that show we're serious about getting into and living in the kingdom of heaven. Now I was given that key to get into the house. I was given that code and I punched it and sure enough the lock opened right up. There's a note in there and there was so much kindness. I could sense kindness all through as I walked into that house. There was a note there explaining things and saying there's things here for you to use and make yourself at home and I don't know what exactly or what all the notes said. But you know what? There's still limits. I noticed a phone sitting there on the table, and I noticed there's a four. The number four on the phone, which I'm assuming there's four messages. I don't have the authority, and relax, I'm not planning to try it. <laughs> but I don't have the authority to push that button. That's somebody else's button to push. And friends, tonight, when God gives us these keys into the kingdom and living in the kingdom, we better take heed. We better pay attention. Jesus spoke those words to Peter, 
And some years later, I should have checked it out. I'm not sure how many years later, but some years later on the day of Pentecost, a Holy Spirit-inspired Peter preaches a powerful sermon which pricked the hearts of men, and they said, what shall we do? And he gives us the first key, and I think this is about where we have to start when we talk about keys of the kingdom. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and in doing so, he was continuing the message. This is not a message that started there. This is a message that started way back, and I don't know when it was first said. I think maybe back in the book of Exodus, but Isaiah said it, and Isaiah looked forward to the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and he talked about the fact that there's going to be one coming that has this message of repent. Repent. What does repentance mean? What does it mean to repent? I like this, this definition of repentance. It says to change one's mind about sin in such a way as it results in a change of action. To change one's mind about sin in such a way as to result in a change of action. And friends, tonight, you know, if we just have part B of repentance, we only have a certain portion. It's important to get there. It's important to change your mind and to change the way you view sin. But if it doesn't take root in your life, where I now start living differently, it's not true biblical repentance. When repentance grips my mind first and then my heart, it's going to change the way I live and it's going to keep changing the way I live. I wonder tonight how real the message of repentance. You see, it was the first message that was brought forth as Peter came there and he preached that powerful sermon and, and the people said, what shall we do? He said, repent. He said, repent. I'd like us to imagine several things tonight. Imagine coming to the end of life and everything you've ever done is listed before you. And by the way, God knows everything we've ever done. We might as well face up to that fact. He knows everything we've ever done. But all the things that are there, the good things you've done and the bad things you've done, the good words you've said, the bad words you've said, the good attitudes you've cultivated and the bad attitudes you've cultivated. And I have a feeling, you know, we're strangers. I understand that. There might be a couple familiar faces, but by and large, we're strangers. We don't know each other. But I have a feeling the people in Indiana struggle with some of the very same things we struggle with in Ohio. What are the attitudes in my heart? What am I hungering after? And then you imagine standing before the Creator, standing before the God of the whole earth. And here's the list. And how are we going to explain it? You know, I don't know exactly how it's going to be. But tonight, I know it's all too easy to find excuses for what I want to do in life. I know it's all too easy. But I think when we stand before the Creator, we're going to understand excuses have run their course and they will no longer work. I 
I believe the gap between God and man is so much bigger than we often care to admit. And when we come to grips with it, repentance is all that remains. How often have we done with, have we, have we been there with Isaiah when he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. In verse six, chapter 6, verse 5, he said, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What has my view of the eternal God done to my attitude about repentance? And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible gives us this precious promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What catches the attention of God? What is he really looking for? Let's turn back to the Old Testament. And by the way, we plan to spend a lot of the message tonight in the Old Testament. In the book of Second Chronicles, I failed to give the title, but I've entitled the message tonight, Where is Hanani? But in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Think about the description of God. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. How often have we done it? How real has it been to us? You know, what is God really looking for? Is he looking for self-justification? Is he looking for excuses? Is he looking for ways that we compare ourselves? Have you ever noticed how that works with repentance? When you approach somebody about something, and I'm sure I've done the very thing, I take somebody else and I say, well, you know what? So-and-so, just look at him. And you're coming to me about this? Just look at him. Or just look at her. Look at the attitudes they have. What is God really looking for? And think about it tonight as you think about those lists. We don't have to fear about the bad things that are on that list as much as we have to fear having an improper view of repentance. Revelation 2 talks about Jezebel. It says, which calleth herself a prophetess. And the Bible says, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. Friends, tonight there's many times God has given us space to repent, but the question remains, have we repented? Are we staying current with repentance? And you know what? The Bible is crystal clear. Nobody can argue it tonight. The Bible is crystal clear what it takes for entrance and for living in the kingdom of God. This is not just some one-time thing. Do you think when Jesus gave that model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, I believe it is, where he said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, did he mean for that to be about a twice-a-lifetime prayer? I highly He said, forgive us our debts. Where do we stand before God? 
There's been utter disaster in some of our circles where hidden sins have finally come to light after years and years of people keeping it hid. Some of you may, may have heard of the case we had back in Holmes County. It's one of the most awful ones where a man, he was actually a minister, he had gone right on preaching, he had gone right on taking communion, he had gone right on through the motions of life, and after 30 years, finally somebody had the courage to, to, go, to come forward and say, this is what he's really like, this is what he's really doing, and I'm not here to tear him apart, I think he has repented, I think he has apologized, but friends, think about it tonight, things were kept hid for years and years and years, there was victim after victim after victim, and on the outside nobody knew. On the outside, everything looked like, oh, it's just like it's always been. And that man will spend the rest of his years in jail unless the Lord intervenes. But think about it tonight. What would have happened if he'd had a proper view of repentance and when those sinful and awful and filthy habits were forming and starting, if he would have known to repent? If he would have known to repent, there's also another one that has just unfolded. And, and the, the general Christian sphere, I don't know what to call it, or the, the churches where these, there's people involved, and, but they're simply reeling. Because there was a man that for years and years, and I, I heard many messages that he preached, for years and years preached, and now since he's dead, there's things coming to light. People coming forward and saying, this is the way he really lived. What would have happened with a proper view of repentance? Let's turn back now to the Second Chronicle, book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, and then we're going to go back a couple chapters and we're going to look at some things here. But I'd like to think about this question tonight, where is Hanani? Where is Hanani? Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. And I don't know how familiar you are with the story, but we plan to go through the story. But think about it tonight, a man that I think understood repentance, understood a reliance on God, understood faith and trust in God in, in ways that inspire us, in ways that, that make us say, yes, this is what we should do when we come to these situations. And now he's been told, you've done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. And we're going to turn back a little bit. But actually, before we go there, I'd like to just think about this. As we think about the question, what is God really looking for? And you think about it tonight, there's, I believe there's now over 7 billion people on the face of the earth. And think about these words tonight where it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth, looking for a heart that is perfect toward him. What's he finding in my heart? What's he finding in your heart? 
He's looking. He's still looking. He's searching. He knows what he can do. But he knows what happens when we, when we hide sin and when we go to, through steps of self-justification and blame-shifting and all these things. He knows what happens, but he's looking for a heart that's perfect toward him. But before we get to this story about Asa, I'd like to turn back. 2 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. And we're going to just get the story a little bit, and we're going to go pretty fast through this. But 2 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 15, So the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was of God that the Lord might perform his word, which he spake by the hand of Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king would not hearken unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David, and we have none inheritance in the son of Jesse? Every man to your tents, O Israel, and now David, see to thine own house. So all Israel went to their tents. There's a story here about Rehoboam, and the end, the end analysis of Rehoboam's life was some very sad words. You know, he would have had such a golden opportunity. We could go back there. Perhaps we'll refer to some of that later in the week. I don't know. We could go back there, but we won't tonight. But he had such a golden opportunity and, and he was being given this kingdom that his father had and his father had gone down wrong roads and, and Rehoboam seems to be asking some good questions of how do I do this? But the end result, the end analysis of his life was he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. How much time have I spent preparing my heart to seek the Lord? You've probably heard the saying, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. We don't get there Automatically, We cannot coast there. The end analysis of Rehoboam's life was he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. But this says something here that's interesting. It says, so the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was of God. God was doing something here. And I don't think we can say, oh, okay, well then that justifies what Rehoboam did. No, I believe God was doing something here because of the sinfulness of man. He was dividing the two kingdoms. That There's going to be two kingdoms now. There's going to be the ten northern tribes that will be referred to as Israel and the two southern tribes that will be referred to as Judah. We go on here in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 13 where Rehoboam's son Abijah now reigned as king and is reminding Israel that they are not being faithful to the true God. There was much more of God working in the nation of Judah than in Israel. In chapter 13... If I can find the verses now, verses 8 and 9, it says, And now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, and ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves which Jeroboam made you for gods. Think about it tonight. These people had golden calves. In verse 9, Have ye not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands? How often have we looked at the world and we said, you know, this is how they do it, and we need to do it more like they do. Look at how happy they are. We need to do it more like they do. Look at the protection and the security they have. And friends, tonight, there is no security so great as that in Jesus Christ. There is no security so great as to knowing where we stand before our God. But he's reminding them here. Abijah's reminding them. He talks about the fact that they've cast out the priests. And we're going to get to this a little later, Lord willing, but why do we do it? Friends, why do we do it? Why do we think if we get rid of the voices, if we get rid of the evidence, oh, now, now we're all good to go. The fact is nothing's changed. 
Just because the voice gets quiet doesn't mean you're now living right. Remember the meaning of repentance. It's to change our mind about sin in a way that affects the way we live. And there's also the verses in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. And these are some terrible verses, but I'm afraid it's, it's verses that get so close to home at times to us. It says, have you not cast out the priests of the Lord? I'm sorry. Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And here's the clincher. Here's something that you and I have to reckon with as we analyze our life for how we feel or how we view repentance and how we've treated repentance. And what will ye do in the end thereof? What will ye do in the end thereof? There's three things here. Number one, prophets who prophesy falsely, priests who rule by their own power, and the people who love it. Does that sound at all familiar? Sound at all like something that churches in the United States have gone through or no? Are we exempt? Jeremiah gives a warning that's applicable for all people, for all time, for all generations. What will ye do in the end thereof? What are you going to do when you've made yourself feel good because someone else said it was okay, but you get to the end and you realize it wasn't true? The New Testament talks of the time they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. Why is it? It seems like the nature of man is such that we feel much better doing wrong if someone else told us it was okay. Why is it? What will ye do in the end thereof? There's a much higher level of faithfulness in Judah. The Bible says in chapter 13, verse 18, Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. There's a story coming. There's a very, very inspiring story coming. As we get to the book of 2 Chronicles, or the chapter here, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, it's one of the most perplexing stories we find in the Bible, in the Bible where a man who found God's victory in the extremes of battle and later appears to ignore that same God instead turning to man. How is it for us tonight? The story starts out on a very positive note. Let's just read some verses here in, in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 14. For he took away the altars of the strange gods in the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. Also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images and the kingdom was quiet before him. You look at this story of King Asa and, and there's, there's, there's two factors that are going on here that are still factors when you and I mean business with God. We're going to get rid of some things and we're going to build some other things and the two must go hand hand in hand. Remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus said this man swept, swept out his heart and, and made everything clean but he didn't rebuild and later the, the demons came back, the devils came back and they came back and the last state of that man was worse than the first. 
There's two things that are happening here. They're tearing things out. They're getting rid of things that were not honoring and glorifying God. And they're building. They're building. You go on and look at verses 6 and 7. And he built, he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest, and he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said unto Judah, Let us build these cities, and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars, while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he hath given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And we come to verse 9. And friends, it's a story that, that I wish we could somehow again capture the magnitude of this story. Verse 9, And there came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian with a host of a thousand thousand and three hundred chariots and came unto Marisha. And I have a feeling that a thousand thousand back then is exactly the same as it still is today. It was a million and if I'm, if I'm correct, Asa's army or Judah's army numbered about 580,000 men. And here comes Zerah the Ethiopian with a million. Now that's not quite two to one, but it's getting pretty close to it. But you know what? Asa was not even concerned about the magnitude of the army that was, that it was advancing. You know what he was concerned about? He was concerned about turning his focus, turning his heart, turning everything he had, turning his trust to the Lord his God. And he says three things that are so noteworthy. In verse 11, And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. That's the first thing he says there that's so noteworthy. He said, Lord, really we could look at this and we could say here's a million, here's 580,000, but really it makes no difference. It makes no difference to you whether there's many or whether there's few. What makes a difference to you is whether we're committed to you. And we might refer, this, refer to this later this week as well, but, but you remember, the, remember King David before he was king, when he was there and he was going up against Goliath. And Goliath, the, the, the obvious attitude in Goliath's life was, you know what? You have no chance. There's no way you're going to win this battle. In fact, it wasn't just his viewpoint. I think it was the rest of David's fellow countrymen and those that were around him, his own siblings. They were saying, you have no chance. And you know what David said? He has no chance. He's defying the armies of the living God. He has no chance. And here Asa says something very similar. He says, Lord, it's nothing with thee to help with many or with few. The second thing he says is, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go forth. There's a time to trust, there's a time to pray, and there's a time to advance. And he says, in your name we go forth. And then he says something that is the sign of somebody that's placed all that trust in God. He said, let not man prevail against us, right? No, he said, let not man prevail against thee. You want security in life? You want rest in life? You want peace in life? Let God fight your battles. Put yourself squarely in that path where you've surrendered everything to him. 
And the outcome is okay because it's his outcome. Asa said, let not man prevail against thee. Chapter 15, there's fuel added to the fire that's already burning brightly. The zeal of Judah keeps growing. There's verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. The the fire just keeps burning brighter. There's fuel added to the fire. Now tonight, I'm going to point out this verse. I don't understand exactly what it's saying. Verse 17, it says, But the high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. I tend to think it probably meant up until that point. But I wonder. You you refer back to chapter 14, the first verses there where it talks about what was being taken out and what was being built and Did the things of earth begin to take root in Asa's life? I don't know. I know it's happened to many, many a man and woman in our time. Where the zeal of God gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer because we're caught up in the things of this life. How many times do we lightly skip things that will build up our soul so that we can go build up the temple? I don't know. I don't know what happened here. But there's something noteworthy here. You think about what Asa was doing. In verse 18 of 2 Chronicles chapter 15, it says, And he brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated, and that he himself had dedicated silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war under the five and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the story ended there? But it doesn't. Chapter 16, one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible, where you take the the obvious victory, the obvious security, the obvious zeal for God that you find in chapters 14 and 15, and now you come to chapter 16. And Basha comes up against... Well, let's just read a little bit here. In verse 1, In the sixth and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come into Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out first sign of trouble. At the end of chapter 15, we find Asa bringing in, he's bringing in these things into the temple. He's bringing in gold and silver and the things that his father had dedicated into the house of God. And about two or three verses later, in chapter 16, verse 2, it says, Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Benadad, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, And you know what's interesting here? I don't know how many thousand years ago this was, but I find this fascinating because the same things that they turned to back then are the things we tend to turn to today. We tend to turn to money and we tend to turn to man. The exact same things that Asa turns to. 
It says he brings out silver and gold out of the treasuries. He goes to Benedad, king of Syria, and he reminds him, saying, There's a league between me and thee, as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go break thy league with Basha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. You know, this is kind of frustrating that this, this hasn't been happening here, and, and I've known all this quiet, this peace and rest, and things have been going so well. I'd like to just give you this money, and can you just make sure this problem goes away? You ever known people like that? I have. Where if a little money doesn't fix it, throw a little bit more at it. And if that doesn't fix it, throw a little bit more at it until the problem disappears. In fact, there's cases, there's things, there's situations I'm aware of now where, where people are frustrated because money simply doesn't fix things. You know what fixes things? Humbling ourselves and falling on our face before God and confessing to him where we're really at and letting him pick us up and bring us back to the blessing that we once knew. That's where that lays. That's where the security and the peace and the rest lays. But there's people that think money's going to fix these things. And you know what? I pity those people. They go through life. They come up against one situation after another and money seems to fix it. And then they finally get to one where money can't fix it and they don't know how to deal with it. He gives him the silver and the gold and he says, Make Basha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. Go, break thy league with Basha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. And Benedad hearkened unto King Asa in verse 4 and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel and they smote Ijon and Dan and Abel, Maim and all the store cities of Naphtali. And it came to pass when Basha heard it that he left off building of Ramah and let his work cease. Then Asa the king took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and the timber thereof, wherewith Basha was building, and he built therewith, therewith Geba and Mizpah. We don't read one word of Asa turning to God and saying, how would you like this fixed? Not one word. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know, are they slapping each other on the back? You know, this turned out exactly the way they wanted it to turn out. The work ceased. And not only did the work cease, but now we have all these stones and timber here. And you know what? Look at how God is blessing our work. Even though we didn't ask him, even though we didn't consult him, look at how God is blessing our work. And they go in and, and they gather up these stones and this timber and they go build two, build two more cities. The God who was ignored did not ignore the scene that had just unfolded. And he sends Hanani. Have you ever noticed how it works? All at once, somebody catches us doing something. Or somebody asks us a question that just feels a little too personal. I'm reminded of the man whose son walked into his office and all at once the computer screen went blank. Have you ever noticed how it works? 
And there's a lot of different ways that Hanani comes, and that's where the question, that's where the, the question, the title of the message comes, where is Hanani? What have we done with him? And Hanani comes to Asa, and the first thing he reminds him of is what happened in the past. He says in verse 8, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubbam a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. He reminds them of how this used to work in the past. Before you decided to take this other route, before you decided to take this route that didn't involve seeking God. And I wonder how many times have we done that? And, and let's just think back a little. We referred to these people that used to preach messages and they got caught in sin. And this sin got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And you know what happens? One failure to repent leads to another failure to repent leads to another failure to repent until people get to places they never dreamed they'd be at. Because they took a different approach to repent. Isaiah says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not to the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Chapter 31, verse 1. And I'd like to think tonight about a couple of aspects of a repentant heart. The first one is that a repentant heart will have a love for the truth. A repentant heart will have a love for the truth, not just a toleration of the truth, but a love of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 talks about those that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You know what? When Hananiah comes to Asa, he comes with the truth. And Asa is faced with a couple situations. What am I going to do with this? Am I going to accept the truth or am I going to reject the truth? When you and I are caught in things, when, you, when something is exposed in our life, whether it's in our personal life or, or maybe in our business dealings or maybe in our computer usage, maybe in our family, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things I could put in the blanks there. But when something's exposed, we have opportunity. We can either accept the truth or reject the truth, but friends, if we have a repentant heart tonight, we will have a love for the truth. You know what? The truth is going to stand for all of eternity, and if we reject it, we're the loser. The truth is going to stand for all of eternity, and if we reject it, we're going to be the loser. And you know what Asa did? brought out the very thing that happens when we're on this slippery path away from repentance, away from seeking God. In verse 10 it says, Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. And you know what? Now it appears like the problem has gone away. The problem is now locked behind prison doors. I don't need to worry about him anymore. But you know what? Instead of fixing the problem, he tripled the problem. 
The sin is still in his life. The failure to seek God is still in his life. There's an innocent man that, the, that his only crime was he came to Asa and told him the truth. There's an innocent man in prison, and now there's innocent people being oppressed. When we don't mean real business with God, and we fall down on our face, and I wonder when the last time is we did that, where we wept for our own sins. When's the last time, if we're honest, that we did that? You know what, we've wept at times because of how we've been treated, but when's the last time we wept because of our own sins? And Asa tries to take care of the problem. Here he has Hannah and I thrown into prison, and you and I can do the very same thing. It might not be a physical prison with bars, but we have ways of getting rid of the problems, getting rid of those things that kind of hinder what we're trying to do. And instead of fixing the problem, it just makes it worse. And you know what's sobering? Remember the story about O.J. Simpson? Probably some of us were sick and tired of hearing the name at one time. I'm not here tonight to say whether he was guilty or innocent. Although I think all of us here would probably say there was a lot of questions. But he spent million after million after million. I don't know how many million dollars he spent on the best lawyers money could buy. And in the end they proved him innocent. Is that going to make any difference when it's all over? Remember the words of Jeremiah? What will ye do in the end thereof? We'll never pull it off to fool God. Never. And if there is not a sensitivity and an attitude of repentance in our life, let's turn to John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. I believe here's so often how it works, and this is the world that Jesus came to. This is what he found, and this is still the nature of man. John chapter 3, verse 19, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth, remember the... Remember the statement that a repentant heart will have a love for the truth, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. And I'm just reminded right now of a verse, and I'm not sure exactly where it's found, but the New Testament somewhere in the epistles talks about the fact that some men's, some men's sins are sent beforehand to the judgment and other men's sins follow after them. You and I have the blessed privilege if, if we know we're involved in these things and, and these people that have gotten caught in it after years and, and years of practicing these things, if they would have just repented, they could have sent those sins on before them. But all at once they catch up. And we have the blessed privilege of sending those sins before us. And my second point is this, simply, a repentant heart will repent as God reminds Please, friends, if you forget everything else I said tonight, remember this. When God nudges your heart, when God knocks at your heart and says, you know what, that isn't right, that the things you're viewing on with technology, the things you're doing with technology, the things you're doing that nobody, you think nobody knows about, that's not right. When God knocks at that door and says, you need to repent, we need to repent. Remember those words to Jezebel when, when God said, I gave her space to repent, but she didn't repent. A repentant heart will repent as God reminds. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Friends, you cannot get away from that message here. It, it's all through this book. It's so crystal clear that repentance is the key to the life that we really, really want. And the Bible says if we don't repent, things can change in a hurry. And was that the case as Asa comes to the end of his life? When failure builds upon failure... We'll turn back now to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. When failure builds upon failure. And look at, look at what's happening here. And behold the acts of Asa first and last. They are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Verse 11. And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to look to the Lord but to the physician. Friends, it's hard for me to, to come to grips with this. You have this, this man that there's a million people coming at him. And he's there faithfully and calmly trusting in God. And now he has a problem with two feet. And he refuses to seek God. You know why? Because there were things crumbling before that. It didn't start there. There were things crumbling before that. You know what? There's some givens in life. And the one is we're going to struggle with sin. If you tonight can stand up and say, you know what? I don't. I'd like to hear your secret. Except I'd probably say, you know what? Maybe you better go home and read about honesty. But we're going to struggle with sin. And you know what else is a given in life? We're going to have ways of dealing with those struggles. Whether it's blame shifting, denial, anger. How are we dealing with it? And parents, if repentance is the key to making it to heaven, and we really believe it, I believe with all my heart tonight that repentance is the key to making it to heaven. Are we leaving a safe path for our children to follow? You know, I've called people, when there's tension, there's problems, and I know beforehand it's not going to be their fault. Maybe you've called people like that too. Somehow what they did and have done and are doing, they have a way to explain it all. Oh, it, you know, it, it could be their fault just a little bit, but... Really, it's mostly somebody else's fault. I wonder how many memories my children will leave home with of dad saying, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And meaning it. They, they, they can spot it from 10 miles out if I'm just saying it. 
but meaning it. And I wonder how often God hears it. What's going on in our prayer lives if we really believe in the power of repentance? If we really believe that it's still the way to set man free? What's going on in our prayer life? And are there areas in my life that I've let go? And perhaps I view them as small. You know what? They're just... I'm, I'm, in, I'm in control of this, and, and I can kind of quit whenever I want to, but you know what? That's how it started. These men, this man that's sitting in prison today, that's probably how it started, maybe years and years and years and years ago as a teenager. I'm going to close with the words of Isaiah chapter 66 again. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father in heaven tonight, we thank you that your word is truth, that it's crystal clear, that it still instructs us where we came from. It instructs us in why we're here. It instructs us in how to live while we're here. And instructs us in where we're going after we were here. Thank you tonight for the clear message of repentance found in the scriptures. Thank you for faithful examples of old. That though they live very God-fearing and faithful lives. They still show us a pattern of repentance. They still show us a pattern of seeking your face. And of being sensitive before you. Lord help us to take heed. And Lord, I pray tonight that if there is hidden sin among us, that we would have this vision tonight that you see all things. And Lord, help us to have the courage to be open and honest before you and to use what you have so clearly instructed in your word as the method to deal with sin, repentance. Lord, we surrender this service, the remainder of it, into your hands. In Jesus' name. We're going to have several verses of song tonight. If there's nobody here with anything that needs to be repented of, trust me, I'll rejoice. And I want to say, too, that, that I believe God comes when Hananiah comes. He came with a message of love. He came with, with a burden on his heart. Asa, won't you consider and, and turn back to the way things used to be. And I believe there's a pleading there. God is not there with a big stick getting ready to, to hit us on the head. But he, he longs for us to have that fullness, that richness of fellowship with him that we had. Remember how it was when you first trusted Christ, when everything was brand new. Maybe tonight there's, there's people here that have never experienced that. And I'd invite you tonight or this week, you know, just surrender everything to Jesus Christ. It's worth it all. It's worth it all. But if God has spoken to you tonight, I would encourage you to come up here and somebody will pray with you and help you. There's, there's tremendous freedom. There's a tremendous freeing in just being open with another brother or another sister, sharing with them of our failures and letting them help us to victory again. Shall we have a couple of verses of song tonight? And if God has spoken to you,